Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. As believers, we are to extend grace to others in light of the grace that God has extended to us. As we study the Great Tribulation today in Revelation chapter 7, we will see if God continues to extend this same grace during this terrible time on earth. Now, here's John with today's message entitled, Five Lessons from a Great Revival, and martyred Christians. You know, I've always thought that when it comes to our relationships with each other, that we should be gracious and kind and merciful because nobody's perfect and we all mess up. I was walking into a grocery store and a lady was coming out and she was pushing a stroller, had a baby in that stroller, and I was in a hurry, but I wanted to be nice. And so I looked at the baby, I looked at the lady, I said, that's a good looking boy you got right there. She looked at me and she said, she's a girl. And I thought, I think I may have rubbed her the wrong way just a little bit. She didn't extend me any grace. But you know, I'm thankful that when it comes to God, whether we get it right or whether we get it wrong, God always extends grace to us. So if you'll open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter number 7, I want us to think about how God one day will extend His grace during the worst possible of circumstances, and that is the Great Tribulation. Now, we've been studying this for the last few weeks, and today we see that as the tribulation unfolds and terrible things are happening on the earth, that God stops the wind. And when he stopped that wind, many, many people got saved. We read in Revelation chapter 7, that during the Great Tribulation, there will be 144,000 Jewish people who receive their Messiah, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. And today, we read that not only will many Jews be saved, but many Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, will be saved as well. So let's pick up reading today in Revelation chapter 7 and in verse number 9. John is telling us what he saw as God gave him this glimpse out into the future. And he said, after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Now, where are these people coming from? Here he tells us, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb." And the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away 
every tear from their eyes. And so it's a beautiful thing that is happening here, and that is in the midst of the tribulation, many, many, many people will be saved. Now, as I've thought about this passage and then thought about what would be the best way for us to to focus our time together on it, I want to draw to your attention this morning five lessons that we can learn from this great revival that will one day come on the earth, and then also, as we'll see at the end of the message, what lessons can we learn from many of these people who will be martyred, killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, it's in your bulletin. We'll just walk right along and let this be our guide today. Number one lesson is that God would rather save than judge Now, we know that God is holy, and God must judge sin, but the fact is, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that was God's judgment of sin. All of the sins of all of the world from all of time were placed on Jesus Christ. That was the punishment, the judgment, the wrath of God. Think about this. Every sin you've ever committed, Jesus took it on himself. And Jesus said, in essence, let me be judged for your sin. Let me be punished for what you've done wrong. And he was. And they put nails in his hands and feet, and Jesus died on that cross for our sins. And so in God's mind... The judgment for sin has really already taken place. And as long as we place our faith in Jesus, we get credit for his righteousness and we receive his forgiveness. And yet there are many people who have rejected Jesus. They've never been saved. And so their sins are still on them. Their sins are unforgiven. And so a holy God has to forgive all these unforgiven sins. And yet even with that being true, God would rather save sinners. He would rather forgive people than to have to judge them for their sins. And we see it here by the fact that the wind was stopped. We read last week, in fact, look back in chapter 7 and verse number 1. John said, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And so the angels here stopped the wind, the wind of the, what was happening during the tribulation. It became very still, became very calm. And when it got calm, what happened? These people figured out that they needed to get saved, and they did get saved. Let me give you a scripture verse. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Bible says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anybody to have to die and go to hell. God wants to forgive everybody. When Jesus died on the cross, there was provision made there for the forgiveness of everybody's sin. And so God would much rather save us and forgive us than he would to have to judge us. And if you think about when you got saved, whether it was a long time ago or whether it was more recently, if you think about it, God let you live long enough to get saved. What if you would have died before you got saved? I mean, after you had reached the age of accountability and you were responsible for your sins, think about all those years that you may have lived before you got saved. What would have happened if you would have died during that time? Well, you would have died and gone to hell. You wouldn't have been going to heaven when you die. And yet God stopped the wind. God let you live long enough so that you could go to heaven and that you could be saved and you could be with God. And to me, that's the first lesson here. God would rather save than judge. Now, the second lesson is this. God's method of salvation never changes. 
We read that these people who will be saved during the tribulation, it says they had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so he shed his blood. That's how we get saved. That's how they'll get saved. Anybody can be saved, but we have to come through the blood of Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ's blood is God's method of of salvation. The third lesson we learn here is that salvation always leads to joy. We read about these people, these tribulation saints is what they're called. And here they're now before the throne of God and they're worshiping God and they're giving him blessing and glory and honor and they're just, their hearts are full of joy. And did you know that joy is the proof that your salvation is real? One of the ways I know I'm saved, not only do I have an assurance, a peace in my heart about that, but I have joy in my heart. And I wouldn't say every day that I'm always joyful because some days I'm not. Some days I'm down or discouraged. But for the most part, the whole of my life is a, is a joyful life. I'm, I'm, I'm happy and I'm thankful for the fact that I'm saved. And that joy is proof to me that, I, that my salvation is real. If you think about it, joy is happiness on the inside that has nothing to do with what circumstances may be going on on the outside. You know, so, ma- so many people in the world, and sometimes even as Christians, we're guilty of this, we try to find our happiness based on what's happening. That's where the word happiness comes from, same root word, what's happening. And if good things are happening, we're happy. Bad things are happening, we're unhappy. And if we try to find happiness in circumstances or in people, you know, circumstances change, people change, our health can change, our finances can change, our circle of friends can change, everything can change. And so if we try to find our happiness in those things, we're going to be up, we're going to be down. It's kind of like next Sunday is opening Sunday in the NFL, and we all have our teams that we watch. And there are going to be a lot of fans next week who are going to be happy until game one is over, right? And then their team lost, and the thing that they've been looking forward to all offseason, this is the year, you know, uh, for our team to do something, and they lose, and it's like, but that's how the world is. If it's going well, we're happy. If it goes not so well, then we're not so happy. But joy is different from that. Joy comes from Jesus. Happiness comes from circumstances. Joy comes from Jesus. I was thinking yesterday as I was or even Friday night as I was finishing this sermon and just writing out why I'm happy and why I'm joyful. I've listed out three things. I want you to think about this for you. And if you're saved, you should be able to say you're happy and joyful for these same reasons. Number one, I'm joyful because I know that I'm not going to hell when I die. And that makes me very happy to know that I'm not going to have to spend eternity in hell. The Bible says hell is a horrible place. There's It's outer darkness. It's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a terrible place, but I'm not going to hell. And the second reason I'm happy, not only am I not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to a city of light, be with God, be with Jesus, be with my family and friends who've been saved. It's going to be a perfect place. I mean, it's a perfect environment. That, That gives me joy in my heart. See, when we know that our future is settled, We can focus on the present and what God would have us to do right here and right now. And a third reason I'm happy is not only that I'm not going to hell and I am going to heaven. I'm happy and joyful because I have Jesus Christ in my life right now. And the scripture says that in God's presence, there's fullness of joy. And I hope that you would be able to say that today, that you're joyful. You're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. And you've got Jesus living in your heart right here and right now. Now, these things that I have said so far are very positive. 
very encouraging. God would rather save than judge. God's method of salvation is always the same, the blood of Jesus Christ. And salvation always results in joy. But look at this fourth lesson that we learn from this passage of Scripture. This is where it's not quite as as uplifting. Number four, salvation does not exempt us from suffering. And I wish it did. I wish somehow when we got saved, God just put a bubble around us and we would never have a problem. We would never get sick or never have an argument or just nothing would ever go wrong. But that's just not how it is. In fact, after we get saved, we still have problems. Sometimes we have more problems. Now look back in chapter number 6 and beginning in verse number 9. Several weeks ago when we studied chapter 6, that's the opening of the Great Tribulation, we saw how the Antichrist will come riding on a white horse trying to look like Jesus. The Antichrist is an imitation of Jesus, a poor imitation, but he's always trying to look like Jesus. And then following him, there will be war, famine, widespread death, cosmic disturbances, earthquakes, going to be horrible. And in that sermon, I said, I want us to save this fifth seal for a future sermon. Well, that's what I want us to look at today. It says in verse 9, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And so even though there will be many people saved during the tribulation, the Scripture is clear that many of those who are saved will be killed. We read in chapter 20 and verse 4 that they will be beheaded. That will be the primary means of their execution. And so the lesson for us today is that salvation doesn't exempt us from trouble. Sometimes salvation causes us to have troubles we wouldn't have if we weren't saved because salvation can create conflict sometimes that we wouldn't have if we weren't at least trying to live life as God would have us to live it. So it doesn't exempt us from suffering. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. And that's so true. And we've all experienced that. And we know that's true. And that leads me to the, fi- the fifth lesson I think we can learn from this. And that is God honors those who honor him. These people who were killed, these martyrs, we read in verse 9 of chapter 6, or we just read, that their souls are under the altar in heaven. Now, the altar represents the place of sacrifice. Christ sacrificed, and in this case, they sacrificed their own lives. But the altar really represents the closest place to God that a person could possibly be. And that's where these martyred saints are. They're in heaven, and they're as close to God as they could possibly be. And that says to me that if we will seek to honor God, here's the principle and teaching of the Bible, that God honors those who honor Him. God said that Himself in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30. He said, those who honor me... I will honor. Let's say that together. Those who honor me, I will honor. It is a promise that if you seek to honor God, what does it mean to honor God? It means to trust God. It means to try your best to do what is right and to honor God by the way you live. And God has said, if you will honor me, I will honor you. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 12 and verse 26. He said, he who serves me, 
Him, my Father, will honor. And so if we try to serve God and if we just try to do what's right, none of us are perfect. We don't always get it right. But if we'll try to do what's right, that God will honor us. I think about so many people in the Bible, for example, who got in difficult situations. I mean, the Bible is full of people like this. And yet they trusted God. They tried to do what was right. They honored God. And God honored them. I'll just give you two examples. Maybe the best two in all the Bible. First example, the best example is Jesus. Think about Jesus on that Thursday night before his Friday crucifixion. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying to God. And he said to God, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. In other words, he was saying, Father, I don't want to have to die on the cross to pay for everybody's sins. But then Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Well, what he was saying is, God, I want to honor you. I want to do what you want to do more than I want to do what I want to do. So he said he was honoring God. Well, the next day, did God honor him back? No, because the next day he was crucified. The next day after that, did God honor him back? No, his body was in the tomb all day on Saturday. But on Easter Sunday morning, God honored Jesus. He brought him back to life again. And so the, the teaching is that God honors those who honor him. He may not do it immediately. Even these martyrs here who are in heaven or will be in heaven because of their faith in Jesus Christ, it's, God said to them, you rest a little while longer. See, they were asking God to vindicate them, to punish the people who had taken their lives. And God said, not yet. Wait a little while longer. It's not time for that. Your vindication is not going to happen right now, but it will happen one day. And it happened with Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, and then he was resurrected. And then I think about the Apostle Paul. Here's a man who devoted his entire life to serving God. And he's telling people how to be saved, and he's starting churches, and he's doing all this good work, and he ends up in, in jail and in prison because of his witness to Jesus Christ. And it would have been easy for Paul to have said, now, God, this is just not fair. I am trying to do what you want me to do. I'm trying to honor you with my life. And Paul would be the first to say, I'm not perfect. I mess up. I still sin. But still, God, I'm trying to honor you. And why have you allowed me to be in jail? And when Paul was in those prisons and when Paul was in those jails, had he had a pity party and done that type thing, and why me, why this, poor pitiful me, think of the opportunities he would have missed that he didn't miss. Because in those settings, he was trusting God and trying to honor God. I think about all the guards that were guarding Paul. We read that he would be in prison and his cha- he would be chained to those Roman guards. That's how they used to do it. You would be chained with this hand to a guard and chained with this hand to a guard. And they worked four-hour shifts. How would you like to have been an unsaved Roman guard chained to Paul for four hours at a time? You didn't have a chance. And he shared with them how they could be saved, and many of them were saved. And, and also, while Paul was in prison, instead of him saying, God, why are you letting me be here? Why are you allowing me to do this? This just doesn't seem fair. Paul didn't do that. Paul said, i got to get out of pen. I, God is speaking to me. I've got to write some of these things down. Had Paul not honored God in those prisons and in those jails, you know what we would not have that we do have? We wouldn't have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. We wouldn't have 2 Timothy. These are the prison epistles that Paul wrote in those prisons because he chose to honor God as best he could. The thing I'm saying to you today is that if you will do what is right as best as you can, that God will honor you, that is the promise of Scripture, and that is what God always does. Now, I told you at the beginning of this series that 
The primary, one of the primary books that I'm using is this book by David Jeremiah, The Book of Signs. It's one of five books that I'm studying each week to try to prepare these sermons, and his has been very, very interesting. And he has, in this book, an entire chapter devoted to these martyrs, these Christians who were saved during the tribulation, and because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they're killed. They are, they're beheaded. And uh, their lives end tragically and suddenly like that. And he, he's devoted a whole chapter to this. But at the first of the chapter, he, he, he talks about other people in more recent times who have been martyred for their faith. And it is so well written that I think today I want to just read you a few paragraphs. Normally I would paraphrase it and just tell it to you. But he has written it so well. I want you just to listen to what he has written. He said, it was not a large gathering. Only a few dozen worshipers assembled in the courtyard of the Virgin Mary Church in the village of Al-Aur, 150 miles south of Cairo, Egypt. He said, a preacher stood and spoke in somber tones to to an equally somber group. The life we live is but numbered days that will quickly pass, the Bible says. He was not beginning a sermon on time management or stewardship. He was addressing the reason the congregation had grown smaller. Just a few days earlier, in February 2015, the organization known as the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, we know it as ISIS, had decapitated 13 of their members on a beach in Libya. These Coptic Christian men were among 20 that ISIS murdered on that day. He said in the opening story of this chapter, I told you that ISIS had beheaded 20 Christians on that Libyan beach, but the actual number beheaded was 21. He said, I withheld the name of the last one so I could end this chapter with his inspiring story. When ISIS published the video of the mass beheading, there was one face among the Egyptians whom no one could identify. He said, it was later learned that he was an African from Chad, a man named Matthew Ayerga, who had migrated to Libya to find work. He was not a Christian at all. For reasons that are not clear, he had been swept up with the 20 Egyptian Coptic Christians and marched to the beach to die. Ayerga knelt in his orange suit in the line as the executioners asked, asked each of the Christians to reject Christ and then beheaded them when they refused. Finally, the butchers reached Ayerga. Although he was not a Christian, they they demanded that he reject the Christian's God. Do you reject Christ? They asked. Having observed the faith and courage of the Egyptian Christians throughout the ordeal, Ayerga was deeply moved by the unbending power of their belief. At that moment, he knew that he wanted what they had more than life itself. He calmly confessed to his captors, their God is my God. And then David Jeremiah said moments later, like the repentant thief on the cross who confessed his faith in Christ, I believe a Yerga entered paradise along with his fellow martyrs in attempting to shrink the size of the church triumphant. ISIS actually caused it to grow by one. 
Heaven will one day reveal how many others, like a Yerga, will have entered paradise after witnessing the faith and martyrdom of those Egyptian Christians. And then he ended the chapter with these words. I hope the courage of the martyrs we have studied in this chapter will inspire you to stand strong in your commitment to Christ, regardless of the cost. Even if it means giving up your own life, what is that compared to the glory of the reward? We hope that John's message today, Five Lessons from a Great Revival and Martyred Christians, has been a blessing to you. You can find this message, along with many others, on the web at www.peacebybelieving.org. Do you need some encouragement as you continue to stand strong in your commitment to Christ? If so, we have a booklet on our website that may help you. It's entitled, The Lord is My Shepherd, How God Leads His Children. You can find it under the Booklets tab or by going to peacebybelieving.org booklets. If you would like for us to pray for you on your journey of faith, send us an email to info at peacebybelieving.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.